the latent threat of a devastating nation-state cyber attack on the US, why US banks are building out fusion centers, and why criminals shouldn't trust the anonymity of cryptocurrencies on the dark web. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. We've already witnessed the destructive power of malware attacks such as NonPetya, which was blamed on Russia. This was seen as something of a test run, but even so, was devastating in many ways that were probably unanticipated. With the latent threat of a nation-state-led cyber attack on the horizon, it begs the question, how would the US cope if this happened? The answer? Not well. Here's ISMG's managing editor, security and technology Jeremy Kirk with the details. What would happen if the U.S. was struck by malware along the likes of NotPetya? That was the rapidly spreading worm that initially hit the Ukraine in 2017, but ended up infecting organizations worldwide. The U.S. would probably be caught flat-footed. That's the conclusion drawn from a new memo from the Foundation for Defense of Democracy and the Chertoff Group. It comes from a tabletop exercise held last October that theorized an attack within a software supply chain used by many industries. Such a strike is termed a cyber enabled economic warfare event. It would be intended to cripple the country's economy and infrastructure. The impacts could be severe, affecting food supplies, healthcare, and financial services, possibly sparking a public panic. David London is senior director at the Chertoff Group. He says most company executives realize that at least initially, the government may not be able to help. There is a lot of embedded and and highly sort of regularized coordination. But I think when you take a cyber scenario and put it on steroids, as a CEW event would likely sort of present itself, that that those models can start to fray. The report echoes conclusions that have been made over the last decade by other analysts and think tanks. The government and private industry need to work closer together. That includes better preparation and the sharing of technical data. The idea is to jumpstart initiatives that would help organizations anticipate how a global cyber attack would affect their operations and what government resources are available. Although the U.S. government has been working to bolster its capacity in private sector cooperation, there's agreement it may not be enough. There has been progress as many critical industries such as finance and energy are participating in groups including the U.S. National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. London says, however, that it would be ideal for government and private companies to have muscle memory of what to do when an incident erupts. London again. Those that are well briefed are, are I think, astute enough to know that in, in the event of a major cyber-enabled enabled economic warfare event, there just aren't, because just the conditions the, and the attacks are so widespread, that there just isn't going to be the government you know, bandwidth to be able to assist in response and recovery for all organizations. There are also concerns that if companies perceive a lack of U.S. government support, they may try to directly engage foreign governments. That could mean a violation of the Logan Act of 1799, which forbids unauthorized people from negotiating with other governments. The memo cars out a lot of work that needs to be done on cyber readiness, but at least some of the problems are well defined. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. If you're a financial institution, you're probably at the forefront of cybersecurity initiatives since you're a prime target for criminals. In the words of the famous criminal Willie Sutton, that's where the money is. This week, 
I spoke with Scott Walters and Eric Reddell of the consultancy Booz Allen Hamilton about what they're seeing as cybersecurity priorities for US financial institutions in 2019. With cybersecurity and fraud traditionally siloed, I asked, what are some of the ways that this is changing? Here's Eric's response. One of the things that we found traditionally is that the fraud and the cyber groups have acted in a very independent manner. Um, we're, we're getting a great deal of traction in terms of looking at how the two groups approach a similar problem together uh, because we've actually seen instances where the two teams are actually fighting the same threat actor, not knowing that they're actually focusing on a common enemy. And just by getting them to understand how to pull together as a single team, taking things like threat intelligence and how that works into the fraud environment. Um, so there are specific tools, for example, in, in fraud, looking at behaviors, patterns, understanding things like context and geolocation, when you start to fuse that with some of the cyber threat intelligence, you get a really powerful equation and you can start to detect things like campaigns and specific threat actors. And you can really understand that some of these events are not random, but rather targeted at that environment and you can start making some good decisions around. We're also seeing sort of cross-pollination of the teams. We're seeing fraud analysts embedded in the CTI organizations and seeing CTI uh, analysts being embedded in fraud. Or, or at least sharing information, creating a closed loop, a lot more communication, a lot more collaboration uh, between fraud and cyber. So is the concept of a fusion center being more broadly adopted in the U.S. by financial institutions? Here's Eric again. I think a lot of financial institutions are very familiar and have been implementing the concept of a security operations center. That certainly is nothing new. Largely, we find it's, it's based on regulation and compliance. Auditors are certainly looking to make sure that financial institutions have those. Um, it's typically reactive. It's looking for attacks and then doing something about it after the fact. We think the concept of the fusion center is really becoming more popular as an effective way to mitigate or address those threats because it is, in fact, looking on the horizon with threat intelligence. It's creating the content of the rules, if you will, based on that intelligence so that the SOC now can look for the things that it cares about versus just the daily noise, if you will. And then on that basis, they can take appropriate actions that are highly targeted, ideally anticipatory. But if it does happen, if there is an event where there's a breach, they are very quickly able to detect that there is something wrong, um, hopefully measured in the span of hours or days and not, not months or years. Finally, an international operation to target users of WebStressor, a service that allowed customers to launch DDoS attacks on demand, is underway and has resulted in arrests, according to Europol. The Achilles heel, trusting the anonymity of cryptocurrencies on the dark web. Here's ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, with a story. Never think that using a darknet cybercrime service means you'll stay anonymous. That's the moral of the story for users of WebStressor, a notorious stressor booter service that allowed customers to launch distributed denial of service attacks on demand. Last week, the UK's National Crime Agency said it has served eight warrants and seized 60 devices from users they suspect of patronizing WebStressor. The NCA says it's also served cease and desist letters on numerous individuals and says it plans to pay house calls to 400 more suspects. WebStressor boasted 136,000 registered users and was used to launch more than 4 million attacks against websites. Targets ranged from banks and government agencies to police forces and gaming sites. 
Subscriptions for the service started at just $14.99 per month. But the site's dominance as the world's biggest stress rebooter service came to an abrupt end in April 2018, when six of the site's suspected top administrators were arrested in the UK, Croatia, Canada, and Serbia. Also, police hauled in and questioned some of the site's top users in Australia, Italy, the UK, and beyond. This law enforcement effort, dubbed Operation Power Out, is continuing, spearheaded by Dutch and British law enforcement agencies and backed by Europol, the EU's law enforcement intelligence agency. So far, however, it's not clear how authorities have been identifying suspected web stressor users. It's likely that police have continued to study the systems, equipment, and records that they seized when arresting suspected web stressor administrators. Even if users paid with pseudonymous cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin, they may have reused email addresses and inadvertently revealed their identity. It's also not clear if web stressor might have been logging users' IP address. In addition, police have continued to seize records for other darknet services. In 2017, police shuttered the world's two largest darknet marketplaces, Alphabay and Hansa. Seized information would have included lists of the Bitcoin wallets used by customers to make payments, as well as postal addresses to which goods should be shipped. No doubt a law enforcement big data effort now remains underway as investigators build lists of darknet users, including all of their relevant details. In the words of Alan Woodward, a computer science professor at the University of Surrey, if you were daft enough to use webstressor.org to pay for a DDoS attack, then you could expect a visit from the police. One safe bet is that many of the users of these stress rebooter services, as with many cybercrime services, will be young. One of the top targets for stress rebooters is gaming sites, as users seek to knock rival services offline. As authorities identify young adults who engage in this type of behavior, some European countries have been testing new intervention strategies. Their goal is to divert young stress rebooter users and other potential cybercrime aficionados into more positive and legal pursuits. In 2017, in the UK, the NCA began testing weekend rehab camps for young cybercriminals, showing them that if they took a job in the cybersecurity field, they could use a similar skill set in return for a legitimate paycheck. In the Netherlands, police and prosecutors are jointly running an experimental program called Hack Right. It aims to keep first-time offenders aged 12 to 23 from graduating to more serious crimes via a four-phase program, recovery, training, alternatives, and coaching. Some consultancies have reportedly been allowing these young offenders to intern in their IT departments to give them a taste of what's possible. Europol notes that a young Dutch user of webstressor.org has agreed to pursue this alternative hack right sanction in lieu of other potential penalties. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. The music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time. Oh,